Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Orla Shanahi of VoxGig, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting and attending. In each episode, I sit down for a relaxed fireside chat with people in the public speaking community. My aim is to learn how they've mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And just before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to our sponsor, simplecast.com, the first and last word in podcasts. I'm speaking today with Alex Staniforth. Alex is a record-breaking adventurer, keynote speaker, published author, brand ambassador, and charity fundraiser from Cheshire in England. At the age of 24, he has already attempted Mount Everest twice and is dedicated to inspiring others to achieve their own Everest in life. Alex is no stranger to adversity. He has overcome epilepsy, bullying, and a stammer in early life. These experiences have redefined his view of success and failure, and he's developed the realization that success lies not just in reaching the top, but our journey to get there. Alex, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you. No, it's great to be here and, you know, thank you for having me. Not at all. So you're in an absolutely beautiful part of the world, the Lake District, and I know you have a a great connection with nature, which we'll get on to talk about in a moment. But this is a public speaking podcast, so I wanted to get straight into that side of things. You're an experienced, accomplished speaker. You have, I've seen your TED Talk on YouTube. So I'd like to ask, did you ever receive any training? Are you self-taught? How did you get to the level of professionalism that you have today? Yeah, from a training perspective, I've been doing more and more speaking over the years and started to increase my fees accordingly through that sort of experience and the reputation that I was building. And it all grew kind of grew very, very quickly, but I kind of realized that to take it to that next level, it was definitely the time to get some professional support just so I could take it up to the kind of precision that a company would expect um, and pay for. And so I did end up paying for a professional speaking coach and it's probably the best investment I ever made. I mean, you know, I paid a very modest amount for that, but that level of insight that I picked up on things I wasn't aware of. And it's kind of a bit of a, Bitters, you know, a bitter pill to take because at first you're going to realize how much stuff you've been doing wrong for quite a long time. But you have to see that as a positive and actually gave me the chance to address that. And straight away, the, the feedback really told me just how much of a difference I'd made to the level of my speaking. And yeah, I think that for me is what taught my speaking up a whole notch, was just having a professional to help improve not only my speaking skills, but then to actually go through my story and make sure that all the messages were concise because I had the challenge that I was doing more and more adventures and challenges. And so I was getting more content, but having the same time and and trying to not lose sight of the actual message through trying to cram contents and and stories in there really. So it was invaluable. That sounds like you really benefited from it, even though you were probably already doing, you know, I can imagine a good job of speaking, but still that professional input helped you go to the next level, as you said. And uh, how did you find your speaking coach? Well, to take it back further, I mean, when I I first got into speaking, I actually had my first kind of proper corporate booking for the Chester Business Club. And this was going back in 2014. So, so yeah, it feels like a long time ago now. And 
it was by far the biggest step up I'd taken. Uh, the first time I'd actually been paid a good amount. And this time my mindset kind of switched onto the fact that, wow, I can get paid for this. This is good. Yeah. And through that, I was lucky to meet my first coach of sorts, which is John Thompson. And John Thompson's a brigadier. He's, he's a very experienced speaker in, for his time you know, in the army and the military. And his background, his advice was just the first kind of insight I had into how to speak well. And, and we worked from the very, very basic beginnings. And he just gave me his, his time and, and thoughts in terms of how to structure talk and the content and almost the very, very basics of speaking that I'd never been taught. And I found John purely by chance. And, you know, I still work with him today. You know, he's still a, a great supporter and a great mentor. But after then, when I kind of needed the kind of higher level support, I literally just looked around on, online, on LinkedIn. Um, I think LinkedIn was the first port of call. And there's a lot of coaches out there. Actually, there was, there was quite a few, but I just found that they were very, very supportive, very generous with their time as well. And it was a small investment for something that really took me up a level in the speaking world, I think, because for companies, you have to, you have, to have that level of precision and detail. And I think that's what it really brought me, really. Okay. You are quite open about the fact that you have a stammer. And I'm sure some of our listeners will be quite interested in this, whether they're facing the challenge of a stammer themselves or any other difficulties. Did you take any specific measures to address that? And stepping back even a little bit further, what's your view of so-called speech impediments? Is it all bad? Can you use it to your advantage? Tell me what that's like. Yeah, it's certainly been a journey of, of highs and lows and, and a very unlikely journey, to be honest. I mean, to go back further, I mean, with, with, with my stammer, I've had that since I've been able to speak. So I've never really known otherwise. And so as a result, speaking in public was, was always going to be the biggest nightmare for me, really. I mean, sometimes I've actually smashed up phones at home through the frustration of being able to say my own name, let alone speak in front of 500, 600 people. When I can't pronounce my own name, it's quite hard to believe. And the stammer comes and goes when it likes. You know, it's, um, it's a bit like a wasp, really. And it can be bizarre that I can be on the train to a talk, unable to ask for a ticket, and then I can get up and speak perfectly fluently. What I found with the stammer was that when I was speaking in front of a crowd of people, I was so much more fluent. And it doesn't really make sense, but I would really struggle uh, on the phone or conversationally with one or two people. But a room full of faces, I just seemed to switch into a, a different mindset. And it wasn't always easy. Crikey, I mean, my early talks, I used to stammer quite a lot through that, throughout the talks. But what I found was that through rehearsing the talk and knowing word by word the script, I was able to really control the stammer and minimize it. Because with stammering, you kind of learn to kind of swap words to avoid stammering. Now, sometimes that was difficult if there was certain, sort of certain words I couldn't get around, like my name or my age or where I'm from. But generally, I found that each talk was a bit uncertain. I didn't know how the stammer was going to be until I started talking. And that obviously fed a lot into the fear aspect. But what I did find was that even when I stammered, people had a massive respect for that. It showed a lot of vulnerability, authenticity. And it really has become part of the story, which is about you know, we can't always control what happens to us in life, but we control how we respond to it. And so the stammer has really been an advantage because it showed a very human side to me. And it's sort of shown that I've got this stammer, but it's not going to stop me. I remember saying once in a talk, I have a stammer, but it doesn't have me. And I think that's been a big part of my success with, with speaking so far, really, is that kind of humanness side of it, really. And it has made it very, very difficult. I have had talks when I have struggled all the way through and I've just wanted it to end and I've not been able to control the stammer. But actually, I found recently as I've got more and more fluent, I very rarely stammer now in a talk. 
I've almost had less support from the audience, but I found that when I did struggle, the audience were kind of willing me on because we've all been there. We've all had those struggles. We've all had things that have, have got in the way. And so we can relate to that. Yeah. But nowadays, I, I went on a course about three years ago called the Starfish Project, which basically teaches um, a breathing technique that essentially you're actually doing some of the elements of the technique while you're speaking in public. You're projecting your voice, you're keeping eye contact, you're taking your time. And perhaps that was why... I often manage to control my stammer, but that level of confidence I gained from the technique really took away a huge amount of the fear. Now, I've always believed that we need some fear when we're speaking. If we're not scared in some way, then we don't respect the audience. But it's just given me that assurance that if I choose to, I can control the stammer. And sometimes I've almost felt like I've been too slick. You know, I've not that I wanted back, but <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's always going to be there. You know, it's still day to day. It's still a struggle for me. But people don't really believe that I can be speaking on the phone and struggling to say words. And then they ask you what you do for a living. And then, you know, oh, I'm a speaker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but hey, it's, it's part of the story. We all have these things to deal with. Yeah. And I think the way you describe it there and the way you just the way you look at it, that it can, you know, which may seem incredible to some people, it can be um Maybe, I don't know, is advantage the right word, but certainly you can turn it into a positive because, as you said, it makes you seem more human and authentic. Yeah. So I think that should be quite inspiring for people who may struggle with similar difficulties in public speaking. You don't have to appear on stage as this perfect being, that it's perfectly okay to show what might be perceived as a weakness. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of the best advice I was given as uh, in speaking by other speakers is, you know, is don't become too polished. Right, yeah. Because it looks just like a script. And although I am very rehearsed, it's always my kind of normal my normal routine. I've, I've almost not had to be as rehearsed now to control the stammer. I've almost found, though, that when I've been too slick, it almost people are like, where's the stammer? You know, they, they always question that. Yes. You know, that adversity. And we all want to see people make mistakes or with their words because it makes, makes us relate to them a lot more. Whereas if mm. we seem, I think if we seem like a robot, people can start to kind of question it really. They want to hear the stories that it's been told to them yes. for the first time. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey, but there's, there's been many, many talks when I've, I've hated stammer. But on the whole, it's, I think it's really helped me to get to where I am. And I think more than anything on a personal level, it's what fueled me to speak more because I was overcoming adversity in my own life. I was not being limited by something that could have been a barrier. Yes. And let's go back a little bit then and talk a little bit more about that. You've had a lot of adversity in your life. Your uh, talks now and the message that you're sending out are about overcoming adversity. And um, you bring the outdoors into that very much so. Can you tell us, can you give us an insight into that, please? Yeah, I mean, I've had a very fortunate start compared to a lot of people. Um, you know, my parents gave me everything I needed and, and my challenges have been insignificant in comparison. However, we all have our own Everest, you know, it's personal for all of us. And, and I guess for me, as a speaker, my, my talks have always focused on that message of overcoming adversity and just we can't control what happens to us, but we can kind of control our response and how we can bounce back from that. And going back to my childhood, when I was about nine years old, I was diagnosed with a malform of epilepsy. Now, that was soon brought under control, but it was just the catalyst for a whole host of other issues, uh, such as my stammer and uh, anxiety, panic attacks relentlessly bullied throughout my entire time at school. So no self-confidence, no self-esteem whatsoever. Hated sports, hated the outdoors. Um, very far cry from, from where I am now. And um, I guess ultimately that game made me a pretty unlikely candidate to be where I am now. 
but cut the long story short, I found the outdoors. I found a way to fight back. I found a way to, to prove myself and to prove all the bullies wrong because I'd never really been able to stick up for myself kind of vocally. And I found this passion. I found this purpose in life. And through that, I just started to forge my own path and eventually set sights on, on the goal of climbing Everest. And that became the focus of my life for, for quite, quite a few years. Um, I say quite a few years. I mean, I was, I was 14, I'm uh, 24 now, so still fairly recently. But ultimately, that was how the speaking started because when you, you know, attempt Everest or when you go to the Himalayas and the, you know, the big expeditions, you have a story to tell that people want to hear. And uh, it was always kind of part of the vision that I would do some speaking, but uh, I never imagined I'd be doing it to the level I am now. And I'm very, very, very fortunate for that, really. And I guess I don't want to lose sight of the, of the journey of where I've come from and things I've learned and the help I've, and the help I've had is that, you know, I'm just an ordinary person, but I think the choices that we make really determine where we end up. And mm-hmm. it's about taking those steps and just getting back on our feet time and time again, really. You referred there to you had support and help from your parents. So having that stable family background, if that's the correct thing to say, you say that gave you a good start in life. Would that be the, the right way to put it? And did that give you then the strength to deal with your adversity when it came along? The adversity had always been there from a child. So my parents had been through that with me, really. But okay. the outdoors kind of came later on. And I think, yeah, they've been massively supportive in the sense that they've never stopped me following my own path. Mm-hmm. By the kind of conventional approach of, of university, of kind of a proper job. And this Everest goal became almost the be all end all uh, for a while. And the game of their belief and just the space, the, the, fa- the foundation to do that. I mean, my parents have always brought me up to work hard for the things I want. And so when it came to fundraising for Everest, I mean, there was never going to be a check. I was, wasn't going to pay for it washing pots in the local pub. I was going to have to go out there and work for it. And, um, that was really instilled by them, but they're not kind of outdoorsy. They're not really that adventurous. So that side of things has kind of completely come, come elsewhere. But they gave me a good foundation. I think when I needed to go to Everest and when I needed to raise all the money, you know, they, they made that as, as possible as they could for me. Mm-hmm. Just by giving me that, that, just that support really. And a lot of parents would have just, as mine kind of initially did, they would have said, oh, that's going to cost too much money or that's too risky. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. But adversity had kind of made me realize that by defying the norm, we, we re-achieve our potential. You know, if we want to achieve amazing things and, and reach that potential, then we need to defy the beaten track. And there was an element of stubbornness there, but ultimately I think it didn't take them long to really believe what I was trying to do and, uh, and support that. And even today, you know, obviously that journey has gone a lot differently to how we plan, but um, they're very, very proud and I'm very, very, you know, looking grateful to have their support. I think mm-hmm. they'll be glad to, they'll be glad to see the back, back of Everest for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So did you finish school or did you, did you leave to go on your own path? How, how did that work out? Um, I did my A-levels yeah. at school, so I left at 18. Um, okay. I was still academic, but I spent most of my sixth form kind of fundraising for Everest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got, reasonable grades but my, my my focus and my passion had gone well, well away from that really and it was all set on trying to get to Everest for the first time yeah so I managed to raise the money from corporate sponsorship 
which was about £35,000 at the time. And I'd not done my first talk until probably just after I left sixth form. And yeah, so it was kind of the gap year that never really ended because after my first attempt on Everest, sadly, there was um, a major avalanche which tragically killed 16 people. And that was the end of that expedition. So had to come home without stepping foot on Everest. I mean, this is after, you know, years of training in the Alps and in the the Himalayas as well, to then go back to the mountain in 2015. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I was doing these conventional, you know, working in hotels and pubs, you know, you're washing pots because I wasn't, I wasn't making enough off speaking at the time. I remember getting a £150 check for my first talk and I was, I was over the moon. I was bouncing around the house and it's like, Mm -hmm. um, that was that, kind of mindset shift for me, really. That's a special moment, isn't it? When you get your first check. It is, yeah. Yeah. It's it's mad to think. It's like, I kind of think now kind of what I will speak for and what I won't speak for. And I think how much it meant to me at the time, but we we have to start somewhere. And over the years, you know, I I wasn't getting enough speaking because my, you know, my experience and profile wasn't there. Then I started working for a business called the uh, Westgrove Group. And basically they're a, you know, their facilities management firm based in Warrington. So I've been an ambassador for them for about five years now, and that that role again not only made it you know it not only made Everest possible for me, but also gave me then the chance to do a lot more speaking. Yes, I've been paid a lot more to speak to their clients and partners around the UK, and that role as an ambassador again took my speaking up to a whole new notch because all the you know all the mentoring and support I had for that. Mm-hmm. I'm still in that role today, and that became another big, big kind of chunk of my job. Alex, sorry to cut across you there. <laughs> Just you say you said there you were lucky. But I'm a little bit skeptical about that. I have a feeling there was an awful lot of hard work and determination involved. I mean, gigs like that don't just land in your lap. It's just fantastic that you managed to get yourself into that position where you were partnered with a company like that, that gave you that bit of financial clout and a bit of profile. It's all kind of come together really well because actually that came about from me doing a talk at the Chester Business Club just before going to Everest for the first time. Basically, they'd offered me a cash payment and a charity payment in return for speaking at their dinners. Now, they've had a lot of top speakers, you know, prime ministers, Ronald Fines, and then there's some kid from Chester. So I think they, they took a gamble on me, really. But I knew that I, I had to do this because I needed the money for Everest. Um, yeah. <laughs> and prior to that, I mean, I started speaking because when I carried the, the Olympic torch in 2012, my old primary school asked me to go and speak. And at first, at first, I said, absolutely no chance. You know, I can't do that. I used to hide in the toilets at school because I'd be terrified of speaking in class. But there was a whole kind of questioning of actually by, by going outside my comfort zones, by challenging myself, I'm opening up all these amazing doors. I've, I've got to do this. And that, doing that first talk to 200 kids, however terrifying it was, is what actually made me realize that actually this isn't as bad as I thought. I can do this. Mm-hmm. And then I was in a similar position with the business club talk and I got a standing ovation from about a hundred business people, which I can still feel the goosebumps now on my arm. You know, it's, it was a real turning point for me. And yeah. the chairman of the, the Westgrove group was, he was in the audience and had obviously heard me speak and, and kind of felt, I want to support this guy. I want to work with him and I want to help him on his journey. And so, yeah, it's, it's amazing that when we speak, we never know who's in the audience and where that leads, really. Yes, that is so true, isn't it? You never know who's sitting down the back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We've gone from there, really. I wanted to talk to you a little bit as well about the notion of failure in inverted commas. You say yourself in your talk that your Everest achievements were failures, <laughs> again, very much in inverted commas, but there's so much focus on making it to the top. And this is a concept, failure, that, that's so relevant in the startup world, especially yeah. the tech startup world as well. 
And of course, there's always the notion of fail better, you know, Samuel Beckett's quote yes. that's used an awful lot in business. So I, I'm really interested to hear how you yourself see the concept of so-called failure and how you can redefine that in a positive way. I'm really glad you asked me that about failure because it's, it is a massive epidemic in, in businesses and schools. As you say, I think it's, it's affecting all of us. And I think it's really interesting to go into what failure means and, and what success means and how we define that. And I think it means something different to everybody. I'm addressing it in a different way because it's always it's quite refreshing because a lot of speakers focus on success and reaching the top and reaching the summit. And in some ways, the fact that I didn't reach the summit has actually given me a lot of really important life lessons and lessons that I can share with you know the audiences as well because we've all been there. We've all experienced failure. And to give some background on that, I mean, with Everest 2014, I'd kind of been driven by this fear of failure when it came to raising the money, the sponsorship, sending emails to the early hours of the morning, putting that on the line, that was kind of driven by this fear of I can't, I can't not make it. And so I didn't really give myself any other option. But then I realized on the way that after the expedition in 2014, obviously when the avalanche happened, we couldn't reach the top, we couldn't reach our objective. So we had effectively failed, but it was due to something completely out of our hands. And therefore, really what I, I realized then was that no matter how hard you work, sometimes failure is inevitable. But that's when I started to reframe failure as actually, it's just a chance to win. You know, failure really is defined by how we respond to that. And I think success is more about what we achieve in spite of the outcome. And so essentially, that's kind of what changed my whole view on failure. And almost this sense of peace with myself that actually, it didn't really matter if I failed because I can achieve something better in, you know, instead. And I saw all these benefits to us not reaching the top and what that taught me. And obviously, in trying to share that to my audiences as well, because as you say, it's not a failure because I just used it as fuel to come back stronger. Mm-hmm. Perhaps failure would be would be more obvious if I'd just given up. But I think trying to embrace this kind of fear, you know, this this fear of it, as actually seeing it as just an opportunity to win, and that makes it suddenly a lot less scary. Which at the same times, you don't want to lose that kind of driver of being afraid of it. And I think I'm still afraid of it to an extent. But I now realize that actually, sometimes it's completely inevitable. And therefore, we can't be afraid of what could happen. Otherwise, we'd never do anything at all. Yeah. And that's come up with other podcast guests here, actually, uh, about fear, particularly, and how it is not all bad. It's not necessarily a, a negative. It can be a positive. And you've illustrated that very well there. I wanted to ask you, Alex, you've spoken as well about mental demons. That was a a phrase that resonated with me Mm. a lot when I heard you say it. I guess what I'm interested in is when you're speaking or you're preparing and the adrenaline is there and when it's going well, it's fun. It's really great and fulfilling. But what about the ordinary days? You know, the days when nothing much is happening, that adrenaline isn't there that you get from speaking or doing something specific outside the house. How do you deal with the mental demons on those days? So essentially, how, how do I deal with the kind of almost the flat days, the normal days? Exactly, the blah days. Yeah, when that adrenaline isn't there, it's just a regular day. Maybe you have nothing scheduled. Yeah. I know for a lot of people, that's when the demons raise their heads. Interesting point. Um, yeah, I mean, life is about the peaks and the troughs. And, and for me, it tends to be from one extreme to the other. I think with expeditions and adventure, it's like there's always... A big project going on and when there isn't it's that kind of trough that mm-hmm. downtime when I do tend to struggle uh, I think I think with my own mental health as well is that when I'm not feeling like I'm achieving something or there's that loss of purpose or loss of direction yeah that's when the doubts and the 
kind of negative emotions tend to creep in again. But at the same time, I think it's important to be aware that we're not just being, you know, kind of a busy idiot. We're not just trying to distract ourselves from the problem. But the reality is, you know, as an adventurer, I'm probably, I probably spend 95% of my time on my laptop, you know, not actually doing (laughs) adventures. But I think since moving up in the Lake District, I've been finding ways to really boost that momentum more often. So for example, this morning, I got up at half five. I was on a run on Helvellyn on Striden Edge. I was running, you know, across a rocky ridge at sunrise on my own, feeling the wind, just nobody else around. And I was in my car back again, you know, in time for the podcast. And it's like those experiences for me just create that kind of positive, you know, that positive momentum. And that's what I love about the outdoors and running and, and adventure. But I appreciate that not everybody can do that. And so I think really it's, it's a case of trying to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, you know, as a speaker, it can be very inconsistent. Sometimes we have months or periods when we're not busy. We don't have bookings coming in and we start worrying about, am I going to survive doing this? You know, am I going to have to give up? Am I going to have to get kind of a proper job? And it is quite worrying. And I think it's having that faith and that past experience that, you know, it will come and things will be okay. And then before I know it, it's stupidly busy again. And I'm like burning the midnight oil again and rushing around trying to do too much. I think sometimes I wish it was a bit more level. Yes. But at the same time, living in the peaks and the troughs is what keeps it exciting as well. And I think as a speaker being self-employed, it's yeah, it has its downsides, but I would never swap it for the world. And I think really it's just in those in those downtimes, it's having a good support network, having mentors. And I think it's really having small goals, small projects in the meantime, really. Okay. Yeah. I've heard of that. I can't think of, uh, there's a particular author who's written a book about mini goals. Yeah. It sounds like that might be similar. So is that something that you practice? It's kind of micro goals, isn't it? I think, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, as I said, most, most of my time is spent on the admin. It's, you know, preparing talks, it's planning logistics, it's doing the other work as well, you know, as an ambassador and also my books, you know, they occupy a lot, a lot of time as well. Mm-hmm. And just the day-to-day tasks of life. And I think that sometimes it can be a bit much when I suddenly get a a big wave of events happening over a short period. And as a speaker, you kind of have to, you really have to take them or at least be selective. Mm-hmm. And I think really it's just about trying not to compare yourself, trying not to kind of worry about what hasn't happened and just, yeah, just keep busy through the troughs really. I think that's all I could say is, um, is always have something to try and try and focus on. Cause I've found that I've really mentally struggled when I've lost a sense of purpose, you know, because I just, lose sight of the goal really and that's um that's never a nice place to be in really not for Mm -hmm. long and you know we often hear about uh, as you said you're self-employed many speakers are especially once you get up to a certain level you know we hear a lot of negativity about it about filing tax returns and doing your own books and things like that but uh you've actually identified a positive there which is that because you're self-employed there's always admin work to be done and it's interesting that you say that can actually sustain you, if that's the right word, or just keep you busy Yeah, as a tool in mental, in maintaining mental health. Yeah. You know, there's always something to do. And I think sometimes the frustration is when I'm, when I'm doing lots of talks or in a kind of performance mode, I don't have time to do the strategy and the, the kind of bigger picture stuff that I need to be doing, you know, as well. And then it's, I have to accept that my pie can only be split so many pieces, but then equally when I'm not speaking, I then need to try and kind of use that time productively, but then you kind of need a time to kind of recover as well because the work's less sort of deadline focused. You haven't, you're not thinking, right, I've got a conference next Friday and that's that sense of time pressure. I do struggle mm-hmm. with that kind of time pressure, whereas in between events, there's not really deadline focus. So time perhaps isn't used as well as I like and then stuff gets, often does get left, left in the kind of last minute. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think 
there is always something to be doing. And I think then I'm just trying to get better at using that time more, more productively rather than these kind of short bursts of rapid energy and, and this kind of burnout cycle, which I think is very common in, in young people and entrepreneurs as well is this whole sense of, you know, all or nothing. Yes. Yes. And I think, uh, with the speaking side of things, again, it's, um, it is a bit difficult sometimes to build a routine. I mean, weekly, if I was in a, a kind of a conventional nine to five job, I wouldn't have the flexibility, you know, this morning to have, you know, obviously gone out and ran in the hills and come back and then, and getting to speak all over the place to a lot of inspiring people. And that for me, I wouldn't swap for the world. Yeah. I think it's really fantastic, especially for any younger people listening, because it is very hard. You referred to it there to break out or it can be to break out from the conventional path of, you know, A-levels, early career, mid-career, then you retire. So I just wanted to ask if you have any advice, is a bit of a cliched word, but to any young, enthusiastic, creative people who are faced with that challenge of accepting the conventional path or breaking out of it? I think absolutely. I think essentially we are the result of our own choices. You know, we 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 do have that choice whereas society around us, you know, tries to kind of convince us otherwise. And I guess I was lucky to have the experiences and the information around me to process it in the way that I did that actually I, I don't need to follow this beaten track. And I think adversity was really what pushed me away from that, mm-hmm. gave me that early insight. And I think whether people want to break into being self-employed or they want to, you know, pursue their passion or their talents. Um, what I would say is I'm probably the worst boss I've, I've ever worked for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it has its challenges. But ultimately, it's um, to be able to, to speak and to make a living from, you know, something that I'm passionate about and contribute something meaningful to other people is it's the most rewarding thing in the world. And what I would say is that as long as you believe in yourself, other people will believe in you. There'll be a lot of doubters. I still get that every day. You know, people telling me, when am I going to get kind of a proper job or, yes. you know, what do I do and how does that pay? And yeah, and it's still, I'm still not all the way there yet. I'm still very much growing and still, still on the journey as we all are. And I've got a long way to go. But um, I think if we can keep on believing in ourselves and, you know, take the bad experiences as fuel to learn from them, get advice, get mentoring. I think having a good mentor is the most valuable thing I've ever had. And I've been very lucky to have that. But again, I think as you touched on before, people will believe in you and want to help you if you want to help yourself, if you have a goal, if you have a vision. And you kind of have to give yourself no other option. If you give yourself a plan B, you'll probably take it. Mm-hmm. The fact is, I never summed to Everest. I mean, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but the second attempt in 2015, we were on the mountain when the Nepal earthquake hit. Uh, we were trapped on the mountain for, for two days. Sadly, you know, we lost... Uh, three of our staff down at base camp. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the biggest disaster in Everest history at the time. And, you know, that's obviously took a lot of processing as well. But that also really gave me a lesson that life is a very fragile thing. And it's a very uncertain thing. And, you know, we don't have time not to pursue that. We don't have time to make the biggest difference that we can. And in some ways, actually, I'm very grateful I didn't reach the top because um, not going to Everest is actually set me on a different path. And it's, it's always given me a lot more, given me a very unique story as a speaker as well, you know, to be involved in those two things and actually to be not talking about reaching the top because there's a lot of speakers doing that. To mm-hmm. talk about the failure and the setbacks that we all experience and how we come back from that. Alex, it's been amazing to chat to you today. There's so much more to you and your story um, that we didn't get to cover. I hope people feel that, you know, that we covered the essentials there. Anyone who wants to know 
more about yeah. you, read more about you, can go to your website, alexstaniforth.com. And uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well. We can also mention as well, if people mm-hmm. do want to read more about about my story, because again, I can talk all day. Uh, I it. <laughs> well, I've got a couple of book signings and talks coming up okay. this autumn um, in, at the Kendall Mountain Film Festival and also in Edinburgh. But also I've got uh, two books out, which cover a lot of the journey. Uh, Icefall came out three years ago, which was about Everest. My recent one, Another Peak, came out in July, which talks more about the mental health and almost exploring that through adventure and how I've kind of used the outdoors and how we can all use the outdoors to overcome, you know, our own mental illness. So that's another chance to read more as well. Yes. Or my social media channels, which you can find on my website as well. Okay, you're on social media and links to those books are on your website um, if anybody's interested in those. Alex, I think I'll have to have you back again soon and have a whole podcast just about time management. <laughs> because I'm really <laughs> not sure how you fit in everything that you do. <laughs> I know. But, um, I think, uh, time management's my new Everest. So I'll let oh, you know yeah. when you get there. Okay. Well, I'll follow that journey with interest. Uh, I think that's something we can all relate to. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with me this morning, Alex. And best of luck with all your future endeavors. Like you say, you're just getting started. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, it's been great to learn so much off the podcast so far so to be on it myself is a real privilege so thank you very much thank you Alex goodbye bye bye thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Fireside with Vox Gig podcast just a few final notes before the embers fade you can find show notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but it is a skill like any other and one you can learn. Visit voxgig.com slash speakers to subscribe to the newsletter. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact us directly, you can reach us on Twitter at VoxGig. And if you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let us know and we'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check our sponsor, SimpleCast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Talk to you next time and remember, take a deep breath, pause and step forward. (laughs) 